This morning I want to share with you what many in church history have believed to be one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. It is found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 through 44, and it is picked up in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Hear the word of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said that he was the son of God. And in the same way, the criminals who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. The story is picked up in Luke chapter 23. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you were under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What the Gospel of Luke does not tell us, the Gospel of Matthew makes clear. That at the very beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus, the two criminals who were crucified with him mocked Jesus. They hurled insults at Jesus. They blasphemed Christ. And they joined with the crowd around the, cro uh, around the crosses to ridicule and jeer Christ. And what Matthew does not tell us, Luke does. And that is that at some point in the process of being crucified, there is a radical change and transformation that happens to one of the criminals. We see a criminal who comes to grips with his sin. And we see a criminal who cries out to Christ to be remembered. We see a man who begins the day. A criminal, a blasphemer, a sinner. And before the end of the day, he will be a son who is set to inherit the kingdom of God. The story that's given here in the Gospels demand that we ask the question, what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross to bring such change and transformation in the life of this criminal? Well, I believe if we look more closely at this story, what we will see is that there are three things that happen. 
First, through the crucifixion of Christ, the penitent criminal recognizes the significance of Jesus' death. If you read through the ministry of Jesus and his earthly ministry, you will see that there are times and places that Jesus tells his disciples that in order for Jesus' kingdom to be established here on earth, he must be handed over to the religious leaders, that he must suffer many things, and that he must die a shameful death on the cross and be resurrected. But every time Jesus shares this with the disciples, they are incapable of being able to recognize or hear what he says. It is not until we come to this criminal on the cross that we see the first person who begins to grasp that truly Christ's kingdom is established through his death. Notice the words of the criminal. Jesus when you come into your kingdom, remember me. In seeing that Christ's kingdom is established through the cross, the criminal begins to realize that the least, the last, and the lost, someone like himself might have a place in Christ's kingdom. He begins to recognize that what's happening on the cross has something to do with him. I have the privilege here at Indiana Wesleyan of teaching theology. And historically, theology has been taught through a series of questions and answers. And I'm sure many of you have heard one of the most famous questions, what is the chief end of humanity? The response to that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But another important question is this why does Christ come and why does Christ die on the cross and the answer to that question is out of love for us Christ came in order to make possible our salvation and this answer is substantiated clearly in Scripture. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in the most famous verse in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I remember as a pastor in Texarkana, Arkansas, I took my four-year-old son at the time, Morgan, to the mall. It was in the Christmas season. And as we were walking through the mall, there was a woman who was decorated in all of her Christmas refinery. And on her lapel, she had a large badge that had a Christmas symbol on it. And my son asked me, Daddy, what does that badge say? And I read it. Jesus is the reason for the season. And my four-year-old son cringed his face and he said, No, Jesus is not the reason for the season. I am the reason for the season. Now, I know what my son meant by that. 
He was used to Santa Claus. He was used to grandparents and friends and parishioners giving him all kinds of presents for Christmas. But in that moment, I realized out of the mouth of a child, a truth. Now, from our perspective, Christmas, Good Friday and Easter, it's about the cross and it's about Jesus. But I tell you this morning that from God's perspective, it is about us. It's about us. the love that has been made manifest in our midst. One of the insidious aspects of sin is that sin feeds us a lie. The devil whispers into our ear a lie, and that lie is this, that somehow because of our sin and our sinfulness, that God no longer cares about us, that God views us as scum, that God views us as insignificant as a result of our sin. There are some of you here this morning that you have been raised in a tradition in which it has been emphasized to you over and over again that because of your utter sinfulness, you are completely unworthy of God. And that God, even in the midst of your sin no longer loves you. What the thief, the criminal on the cross discovered is that there was no depth to which God was unwilling to condescend in order to bring redemption to you and to bring redemption to me that there was no chasm too great that God was unwilling to bridge in order to make possible the way of salvation. It was for us and our salvation out of love that Christ came. That when we see the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the love of God made manifest to us. It's interesting, an early Christian theologian by the name of Gregory of Nyssa and talking about why Jesus had to be crucified on a cross, he said that the reason why, one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified on the cross was that it was the only form of capital punishment at that time in which a person was put to death with his arms stretched open wide. Jesus telling us on the cross with his arms stretched open wide that he was ready and willing to receive all who would come to him. It is the criminal on the cross who is the first to begin to see the significance of Jesus' death. Second, we see that through Christ's crucifixion, the penitent criminal is reconciled to God. Notice in this story that the criminal begins hurling insults upon Christ. He blasphemes Christ. He joins with the jeering of the crowds. And yet there is a point in the process of his crucifixion that he comes to the realization of his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness and how he deserves the punishment that he is given. 
And yet in that moment, even though he has blasphemed Christ earlier, he sees the possibility in the cross that he could be reconciled to Christ. And he says to Jesus today, would you remember me? And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. The criminal points us to the truth that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I, even in the midst of our sinfulness, can be reconciled to God and we can be reconciled to Christ. It's really difficult for many of us to begin to fathom the beauty and the power of forgiveness. Many of us who have grown up in Christian homes have lived fairly good lives, not very rebellious. So we look at our lives and we don't really see necessarily those, that many things that we've done bad. But as I look across my own life and I reflect upon my own life, I see someone who is capable of such depravity. In the course of my life, I have lied, I have cheated, I have stolen, I have used other people for my own personal gain, for my own personal satisfaction. And in the course of my life, I have inflicted irreparable pain upon others. When I was in 10th grade, I had a math teacher who had just moved to our high school and began his teaching career there. His name was Jasper Heron. And Jasper Heron was the first person that I had ever met in my life that I did not like for any reason. He just rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't like him. It wasn't that he was a bad teacher. It wasn't that he picked on me. There was just something about him that I didn't like. And I remember within the first two weeks of class, I said to myself that I was going to try to work to see that his contract would not be renewed. I was going to work with diligence to make sure that he would not be back at my high school next year. And so I conspired with some other friends and I worked diligently in the course of that year, subversively, to undermine Jasper Heron. And lo and behold, at the end of the year, his contract was not renewed. Now, it wasn't simply because of me, but I did play a part in getting a teacher sacked in my high school. And I remember in the midst of that summer, for the first time in my life, beginning to wrestle with guilt about what I had done. And even though I wasn't a Christian at that time, I remember writing Mr. Heron a letter apologizing for my role and what I had done. And within a week, I had a letter back from Mr. Heron. And hope against hope, I had prayed and thought, oh, please, may it be a letter of forgiveness. 
But when I opened it up, it was not a letter of forgiveness. But what it was, was a catalog of the pain that had been inflicted upon him. And not only him, but his family as a result of what I had done. It was a year later and I was listening to Christian music for the first time. In the midst of listening to this music, I began to realize that through Jesus Christ, what I had done could be forgiven. If not by Jasper Heron, then it could be forgiven by Christ. The only person who had authority enough to forgive me for what I had done to another person. Oh, through the cross of Christ, through his crucifixion, my sisters and brothers, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. Thanks be to God. But still, my brothers and sisters, there is a lie that sin tells us. There is a lie that the enemy will whisper into our ears. If it's not the fact that God doesn't love us because of our sin, it is the lie that he tells us that says that our sin is inconsequential, that our sin is insignificant, that our sin really doesn't harm our relationship with God, that our sin does not really harm our relationship with each other in the created order, in the moral order that God has established. The criminal on the cross forces us to recognize our own sin. And in recognizing our own sin, holding out to us the hope and the promise that we can be forgiven. Third, it's through the crucifixion that the penitent criminal receives new life and is rescued from the bondage of sin and the enemy. It's not something that we see fully blown or fully developed in this story. But we do see the beginning of the newness of life taking place and blossoming within a few short hours before the, the criminal's death. We see one who starts out as a blasphemer, as a criminal, and one who becomes a believer, a son, an heir to the kingdom. There is dramatic transformation in a few short hours that takes place in this criminal's life. One of the beautiful truths of Christianity is this, that God loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Remember the first semester that I was here at Indiana Wesleyan University. Our religion and philosophy division has an annual colloquium. And in that colloquium, we were discussing the issue of whether or not people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ can be saved. 
And one paper presented the possibility that people who've never had an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Christ might in fact be saved. Now that didn't surprise me that much. And it didn't surprise me that it riled some of our students. What surprised me was the response of many of our students. And the response was this. If they're going to be saved in the end, why go share the gospel? And I began to realize that many of our students, even within our religion and philosophy division, had an incredibly myopic view of salvation. They saw salvation primarily, if not almost exclusively, as a ticket to heaven. If they already had a ticket to heaven, why go share? Let me tell you why you go share. It has more to do than just a ticket to heaven. Because salvation is a present experience that liberates us from the bondage of sin and liberates us from the bondage of the enemy. It is a present experience. It is more than a ticket to heaven. you've ever known what it is to live in bondage to have things in your life over which you have no control then you can begin to understand the beauty the promise the joy the possibility of being set free in the early church, the most prominent understanding of the doctrine of the atonement is what many of us have heard called Christus Victor. That through Christ's death and through his resurrection, we have victory over sin in this life. We have victory over the enemy in this life. I remember as a Christian who was struggling with strongholds of sin in my life, I remember a roommate of mine by the name of Lonnie Evans in seminary and I was pouring out my, this bondage that I was living in, even as a Christian. And he said, Chris, you just need to give thanks to God that God has forgiven you of your sins. And I remember saying to Lonnie, I said, Lonnie, if all God has done for me is to forgive me of my sins and not to set me free from the power and hold of sin, I don't know that God has done a whole lot for me. Now, I realized that was an extreme statement. But the thief on the cross points out to us the possibility of new life and being set free from the power and the hold of sin. Six years ago, the Columbine tragedy happened. Most of you remember where you were when you heard about Columbine, when Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold entered into the high school and began uh, on a shooting rampage. And you know the story of, of, uh, of Cassie Bernius, who said yes, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold held a gun to her head and asked her if she believed in God and she said yes and she was shot. 
In the midst of that tragedy, I was working in a church. I was a pastor in a church, and I had a man in my church. His name was Larry Thomas, who came into me in that office, in my office. And he said, Brother Chris, I could die for Christ in a moment. I could be like Cassie. If someone was to come in right now and hold a gun to my head and ask me whether or not I believed in God, whether I believed in Jesus, whether or not I was a Christian or not, I could easily say yes. I can die for Christ. My problem is I can't live for him. I can die, but I can't live on a daily basis for him. And I began to share with Larry that through the cross of Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, there is power. There is power that liberates us from the bondage of sin and enables us to live the life that God has called us to live. This morning, as we conclude our service, I want to ask you a question. Are there some of you this morning who have been listening to the lie of the enemy? The enemy who has told you that because of your sin that you are worthless. That you do not matter to God at all because of your sinfulness. Oh, I want to encourage you to look at the criminal on the cross want to encourage you to look at Jesus Christ in his response to the criminal and know that God loves you and what he offered to that criminal, he offers to you. Some of you this morning have bought into the lie of sin, into the lie of the enemy. And you have been led to believe that the sin that exists in your life is really inconsequential where God is concerned and inconsequential where others are concerned. Look to the criminal on the cross and look to the cross of Jesus and see that he died for your sin as an atonement for your sin and that we are called to repentance and to believe. There are some of you this morning who have been led to believe by the enemy and by sin that all you can expect in this life is to be forgiven of your sins but not set free from the power and hold of sin. My sisters and brothers, look to the criminal on the cross and look to the crucifixion of Christ and see that in the cross there is a grace that is unleashed that enables us to be set free to love God and to follow him with all of our being. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that during this holy week, that you would help us to see clearly your love, that this week that you would help us to clearly see the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation that is possible with you through your cross. Help us to see 
the grace that is unleashed through the work on the cross to love you and to follow you fully, to liberate us from the power and hold of sin in our lives. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.